tonight we are in Genesis 38. The title of the message is Judah Departed. I will give a warning. There is mature content tonight. So I'm looking around the room. I do not see any young ones here. Uh, so, but I just want to give you a heads up that there is some mature content. Okay, Judah Departed. Genesis chapter 38. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we are grateful to be together tonight. We're grateful to be able to sit before an inspired Bible. Fiat nustas, breathed out by God and profitable for every area of life. This is a story that sometimes you could wonder if there's any redeeming value to it, but there is. And we're going to find some incredible nuggets in here tonight that you have put here for us to encourage us, to exhort us, to love and good deeds. We're here tonight because we want to know you better. So let all the distractions, all the weights, all the burdens that we brought into this place, Lord, melt away in the beauty of your presence and the majesty of your word. May you be pleased tonight with what we do. May our hearts be open to what you would speak to us individually and corporately. In Jesus' mighty name I pray. Amen. Now, we've been moving, moving through the book of Genesis, and we are in chapter 38. There's 50 chapters in the book of Genesis, so we're kind of on, in the home stretch. And the home stretch of the book focuses primarily on Joseph. However, there is one chapter that's inserted here that does not talk about Joseph. It talks about Judah. And uh, older commentators of the Bible actually were a little bit perplexed as to why this was here. They kind of called it an awkward insertion. Uh, we'll return to the story of Joseph next time we're together in the book of Genesis. But we'll focus on Judah, and Judah, of course, is one of the sons of Jacob. Judah, unlike Joseph, is not a hero heroic, Christ-like figure, at least not in this chapter. He is really the opposite. In many ways, he's, he is a contrast to Joseph. Joseph will be faithful in Egypt, and Judah will be unfaithful in Canaan. Judah's name means praise, or I will praise the Lord. You can look at Genesis 29, 35. But what he does in this chapter is anything but praiseworthy. He is really a scoundrel in this chapter. And that's why some of the commentators have asked the question, you know, why is this here? But there is another character in this chapter, and it's, she's not in my title, but she probably should be, and her name is Tamar. And she is much more righteous than Judah, and she's going to have a significant role in this chapter, as we will see in a moment. This story, one writer says, is so unexpected that older critical commentators argued it was an awkward editorial insertion. But most today admit that its presence... Uh, the presence of this unusual story was intentional and actually argued that it was placed here for special purposes. In fact, a close comparison of chapters 37 and 38 shows that they have many literary parallels, close quote. Now, when I say the name Judah, and you think about the significance of that name, what comes to mind for you? Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And there's, there's a scripture I want to take you to, and we're not going to move around too much tonight in uh, parallel passages, but I do want to take you to one, and it's all the way in Revelation 5. So go all the way to the, the back of your Bible, Revelation 5. I want to show you a scene that many of you are familiar with. It's the scene with the, the scroll in the hand of the Father, Revelation 5, 
pick it up with me at verse 3. Revelation 5, verse 3. The scroll is in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And uh, there's a strong angel, verse 2, Revelation 5, proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And John says, our author of Revelation, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. There's a universal search in heaven, earth, under the earth, but no one is found able. And one of the elders said to me, Revelation 5, 5, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Turn back to Genesis, if you would. Now, of all the conjecture of what the scroll represents, I think we're on safe ground to say that the scroll is probably the title deed to the earth. And there have been some scrolls that have been discovered, and some of them are in museums today, that have actually seven seals on them. And the seals could only be broken by the person who had authority to break them. And as the seals are broken in Revelation chapter 6, we can see the significance because as the seals are broken, the last day's plan of God can unfold. And John is wondering, can the earth really be redeemed? Can it be bought back if no one in this universal search is found worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? But the lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome and he is able. And God's plan will move forward. And John is told, weep no more. This lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. Now Judah is one of the 12 sons of Jacob, as we have noted. And he will become the focus of this chapter. And here's what it says. It came about, Genesis 38, 1, at that time. The time marker is these words. Just go back to the previous chapter. Look at uh, chapter 37. And look at the very end. It says, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt. Uh, Joseph had been sold by his brothers to the Midianites. In Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. So at that time is a chronological note. And some people have questioned the chronology here and wonder if this is enough time for everything that's mentioned in this chapter to happen. I think it is, although I would admit it's a tight squeeze. And here, it's at that time that Judah departed from his brothers. At what time? Well, at the time that Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. Joseph will be in uh, Egypt for a 22-year period. From the sale of Joseph uh, and the departure of Jacob's family for Egypt, there's 13 years before Joseph's promotion to prime minister, followed by seven years of plenteous crops and two years of famine. So you have about a 22-year stretch until uh, Israel, the family of Israel, has to go to Egypt because of a famine. And that's when Joseph will be revealed to them that he's not dead, that he's actually risen to this incredible position in the land of Egypt. And God will use all of that. God will use what they intended for evil for good. But Judah, at this time, notice in verse 1, chapter 38, at that time when Joseph was sold, Judah departed from his brothers and he visited or he turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. At that time when all of this had gone down, Judah departed. He took off and he went and hung out with this gentleman who is an Adulamite and his name is Hira. Now, 
in thinking about some application tonight, and we're going to see that Judah gets himself in some hot water and some trouble. Uh, one of the things that we tend to do sometimes when we make a big mistake, and I think Judah was feeling some conviction about what had happened. I mean, if you have a sibling or brother or sister, no matter how hard things get in your life, um, you still love them. We love our family members. We love our flesh and blood. Things can get hard, but we have a love for them. And I'm sure that there had to be a certain sense of conviction among the brothers, including Judah, for what they had done. And when we make a huge mistake in life, sometimes what happens is we tend to depart. What I mean by that is we depart from our walk. When we make a huge error in life, maybe we've, we've, made a, we've had a mishap in judgment, we've done something stupid, we knew better, but for some reason we went with the flow or went with the crowd, we can kind of cause things to snowball in our lives. And instead of going back to God and getting close to God, we add more mistakes. So if you're there tonight, and you know maybe you've gone through something recently, and, and you're reeling from it, and you're kind of wondering, which way do I turn? You're at a fork in the road, as it were. The thing to do is always to go back to God. But here he departs from his brothers. I just want to make an application point. It may not be the specific context here, but when you depart from your brothers, and I'm going to make an application to your brothers and sisters in Christ, you always end up in trouble. We need fellowship as Christians. Sometimes we try to fly solo when we're having problems. Sometimes we don't want to be around people or we'll ignore fellowship. And I think that's always going to be a mistake. And so Judah departed from his brothers, 38.1, and he visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Judah probably didn't want to face his father. I mean, after all, they were going to have to go back and they had uh, killed a goat and put the blood on the, that coat of many colors that Joseph had gotten from dad. And they were going to have to explain to dad what had happened. And maybe he didn't want to face father. I mean, you could imagine that that was a, a tough prospect because Joseph was certainly dad's favorite. And so he goes to this uh, man who's called an Adulamite. Just a side note for a reference, David departed from Gath from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Uh, when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down uh, there to him. The cave of Adullam is a place where David hid from Saul. It says everyone, this is 1 Samuel 22 two, who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented gathered to David, and he became captain over them. Now, there were about 400 men. That's 1 Samuel 22, 1 and 2. So we do have this cave of Adullam that's mentioned, and this man is an Adulamite, and here is uh, Judah, and he uh, goes and spends time with him. We don't know what the relationship is. There seems to be some sort of friendship there. And Judah saw, verse 2, uh, Genesis 38, there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. Shua means prosperity, and he took, he took her, and he went into her. Now, if you have a New King James or an NIV, it says he married her. He saw her, and he married her. Now, this word, this word for took her, if you have a New American Standard Bible, has a wide variety of meanings. It can mean that he married her. It's a Hebrew word called lokak. And it means uh, to reserve, to seize, to send for, to take, to use, to win, to get, to fetch. I uh, can have the idea of being married. But Judah saw her 
and he married her. She was a certain woman. She was a, notice in verse 2, she's described as a Canaanite. Now, we know there's already been several warnings by the patriarchal family to the up-and-coming sons not to marry Canaanite women. Why were they told not to marry Canaanite women? Because Canaanite women had imbibed or embraced or worshipped the false gods of Canaan. They were polytheists. They were idol worshippers. And there's probably another reason, and that is that the Jewish line was supposed to be kept pure. But time and again, they got themselves trouble in, with, in trouble with Canaanite women. In fact, this was the downfall of uh, Esau. Esau uh, married some Canaanite women. And if you just make a note in your Bible and in your notes, if you look at Genesis 26, 34, and 35, the marriage that Esau had to Canaanite women negatively impacted mom and dad. It was a problem for the family. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Don't be unequally yoked with what? An unbeliever. So there are people, and we can probably interview uh, many, many people in the church who have made a decision somewhere along the line that they could be in a relationship with an unbeliever, marry them, and they think it's going to be okay. Some have called this missionary dating. Have you heard of missionary dating? Missionary dating is, I know that person's not a Christian, but they're cute. So I believe with my winsomeness and the spiritual prowess and powers that I have from Almighty God, even though I'm outside of His will by dating this person, that I can win them to the Lord. And so people enter into a relationships and look, you know, this primary idea has the idea of a partnership or a marriage, but if you're going to date someone and you have a serious, uh, uh, you want to go forward with them in some sort of serious relationship, I don't know why a Christian would be seeing an unbeliever. I just don't understand that. You're not coming from the, the, the right foundation to start off with. So Judah saw her, you could call this uh, verse 2, lust at first sight. We've heard of love at first sight, but I'll tell you what, there's a lot of lust at first sight that goes on with people as well. And Judah saw her, certain Canaanite, her name was Shua, prosperity, she looked good, maybe there was some promise that went along with this, and he married her. I don't know how quickly the marriage took place, but it sounds like it was pretty quick. And all of a sudden, he is in this relationship. If you write down Genesis 24, 1 through 4, Abraham made his servant swear that he would not take a, a wife from the daughters of the Canaanites. That's 24, 3. And Isaac called Jacob and blessed him in 28, 1 and charged him and said to him, you shall not take a, a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Uh, we have a famous man in the Bible named Solomon who learned the hard way. His heart was turned away from the living God by his many foreign wives. We think we can do it. We think, well, that was Solomon, but we're talking me now. <laughs> oh, yeah? And we think, well, you know, I'll be able to lead this person. I, I was reading a commentary this week, and the writer said he had a, a case. A woman had come to him in the church. He's the pastor of the church. And she explained the relationship, and he said to her, don't go that direction. You cannot marry a non-Christian. Well, she went and married him, disappeared from the church, and the pastor said many, many years later he saw her in a store 
And she looked a bit haggard and beat up by life. And she said these words to the pastor, you were right. You know, I will tell you this, anybody who's ever warned somebody about going the right direction and not doing the wrong thing, we don't want to be right. We just want people to follow the right path. How many of you wish that you had someone in your life, maybe years ago, who held your feet to the fire, even if it was uncomfortable, before you made a dumb decision? Anybody? You know, I, I know for me, I grew up in a household where my mom had multiple marriages, so there wasn't always the stability of a, a male figure to really hold me accountable. It was not healthy. There weren't, weren't healthy relationships. And so some of you didn't have that. Some of us had it and we ref refused to listen anyway. But you know what? If you get godly counsel, you might want to pay attention to that instead of trying to find someone who will tell you what you want to hear. It's like you've heard the story of the guy who the doctor tells him, you, you got to get donuts out of your diet, man. Donuts are going to kill you. And so the, the guy's, you know, he's trying to deal with the temptation. He says, okay, Lord, here's the deal. If there's an open parking spot in front of the donut shop, I believe you want me to get a donut. And if not, then I won't get one. And he said, after driving around the donut shop seven times, there was an open <laughs> spot. So that, that had to be the Lord, right? So he marries Shua. And Shua, um, her, actually the daughter of Shua, and her name is actually Bathshua. Now, Bath is just the name for the daughter, daughter of. So Bathshua, we don't really know if, we don't actually have a record of her name, but uh, that's the best we can do. So she conceived, verse 3, and bore a son, and his name, he named him Ur. Ur means awake or watchful. Then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. Onan means strong. And she bore still another son and named him Shelah. Shelah means petition or request. And it was at Chezib that she bore him. So all of a sudden now you have a family. He marries this Canaanite lady. Three sons are born and there's now a family from this relationship. And Judah uh, took a wife. Now, there's a lot of time that goes by, and just a side note, when you're reading your Bible, sometimes there's huge gaps, and the Bible does not attempt to, uh, you know, give you all the detail. This is, there's a, some time that went by. Now, Judah took a wife, same uh, word as in verse 2 for taking. He took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Tamar's name means palm. And so, all of a sudden now, Ur has grown up and a wife is chosen now by dad, Judah. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord. And here's one of your prickly verses for tonight. So the Lord took his life. The Lord took him out. The Lord killed him. I don't know what he did wrong, but suffice it to say, the Bible says he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. What did Ur do and how did he die? We don't know, but we do know that he was wicked in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord put him to death. You can write down 1 Chronicles 2 3. This is where the saying comes from to Ur is human. <laughs> what? Is that wrong? <laughs> Ur was evil. Ur, I, I don't know. Yeah. So 
Judah said to Onan, son number two, go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. So son number one, Ur, is dead. And the cultural and Old Testament practice in this case was if a man died and left his wife without a child, the younger brother was to marry her. He could then raise up children in the name of his dead brother. In fact, the son that was born would be named after the dead brother. He would bear the name of the fallen brother. And so this is how things work. This is called the Leveret Law. And this is what it says. This is actually in the Law of Moses, the Leveret Law. It's spelled L-E-V-I-R-A-T-E. Lever means brother-in-law. So here's what it says. If you want to turn there, it's Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6. When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Deuteronomy 25, 6. And it shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out from Israel. Here's the idea. This was the way to continue the family line. If no child was born to that brother, then his name would cease. So the next brother in line was supposed to give a child to the, the wife and in essence to the brother. And that child would be considered the child of his dead brother. He would bear his name and he would have all the rights of the firstborn. So this is how they did it in the ancient days. They wanted to make sure they preserved family lines and this was all very important. And Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, verse 9, Genesis 38. So it came about that when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. Now, he had no problem sleeping with her, right? I mean, you would think if he, if he really didn't want to participate in this, and, and I think all of his reasons are selfish. His reasons are, I think he either wants the right of the inheritance himself or he doesn't want to give a child to the, to the brother. Whatever his reasons are, he sleeps with her, but then he does not perform his duty. And in this particular case, he does not give offspring to his brother. This was a very bad career move, by the way, by Onan, because he did what was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him too. Brother number two, gone. Did not perform his duty to his brother and therefore gone. Married her, was willing to sleep with her, but that's it. Now there's two strikes. Strike one, son number one, gone. Strike two, son number two, gone. And if you're dad, you think, well, I got one left, right? And this woman seems to be bad news. Do you remember in the New Testament, Jesus was told a story, and uh, this was told by the Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection. They told a story about this woman who was married to seven different brothers. Remember that? And each brother has the woman, and each brother ends up dying. And then they say, okay, in the resurrection, who's she married to? Dun, 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 dun. We got him now. No, you don't. Jesus said in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are, keyword, like the angels. You don't become an angel when you go to heaven or in the resurrection here, but you are like the angels. In what sense? Well, your marriage seems to be only for this 
time, your focus is now going to be on the Lord. In fact, the church is called the bride of Christ. And so uh, I will just say this, that, uh, you know, people who have questions about sexual conduct and what persons can and can't do, they go to this particular Bible verse and they try to make cases for other things here. This is not a case for anything but a man who, does, who did not perform his duty. So you cannot build any other cases that you might want to build about sexual ethics from this particular verse, and I'm not going to say any more about it. Verse 11. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I am afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. So here's what father-in-law says, Judah says. He says to Tamar, Okay, uh, your husbands are dead, two sons are gone. Stay a widow, stay in your father's house, and my youngest, when he grows up, then he'll have you. So in a sense, she's betrothed to the last son. And, but secretly, Tamar doesn't know this. Dad was thinking, this is not good, man. Now, are you all glad? I just want to park here for a second. Aren't you glad the Bible's real? Some of you are here tonight, and you're like, what in the world's going on? This is the Bible. The Bible talks about stuff like this. This is stuff that you see on television. Special episodes of Jerry Springer and things like this. Look, the Bible is pure honesty. In the patriarchal family, the 12 tribes, the tribe of Judah. What in the world's going on here, you might say? Well, the Bible gives you warts and all. You read your Bible, and you're going to run into some things that will both astonish you and simultaneously give you hope. And I think you all know what I mean. So he says, okay, you stay a widow, go back home, and we'll, we'll get Shelah prepared, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Now, after a considerable time, verse 12, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. So now it shifts, and uh, Judah's wife dies, sadly. And he mourns for her, middle of verse 12. And now there's a time for sheep shearing that's going to happen at this place called Timnah. And he and his friend uh, Hira the Adulamite are now together. And it was told Tamar, behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to share his sheep. Now, what's been happening in terms of uh, uh, Tamar is she's just been in a holding tank. She's just been waiting. She's been waiting for her father-in-law to act. And she's in a very difficult position. Here's why. Widows had very few rights in those days. What was her right of redress? What could she do to get her father-in-law to give the last son to her so she could produce offspring? She was stuck. Widows had very little rights in these days, so she basically just had to sit there without a man in her life, without being, produce, being able to produce offspring, and just wait for him to be true to his word. In fact, Judah had her over a barrel. And there are some people, and you, you may be one of them tonight, who you feel like you're over a barrel. You're stuck because you're waiting for the decision of somebody else to help you make your decision. And that's an unfair position for somebody to put you in. 
And so she's been, she's been waiting and she's been waiting and a considerable time, verse 12, goes by. And uh, so much so that uh, Judah's wife dies here and he goes up at this sheep shearing event. And just uh, a side note, what would happen is two times a year they would have sheep shearing and sheep shearing was a very festive occasion. In fact, scholars compare it to the harvest festivals of Israel. It could be carried, twice, carried out twice annually, once in the spring and once in the early fall. And Judah would be going to visit his buddy Hira. And as a Canaanitess, Tamar knew that cultic prostitutes would be out selling their services. They would especially be present at these sheep shearing times because they, they kind of linked cultic prostitution to magical rites that appeased the gods to give you more flocks and more uh, crops. So they tied all of this in. Their religious practices, they're sometimes called fertility practices in the ancient world. What they did with cultic uh, temple prostitutes was to appease gods to get more crops and more flocks. So they would be out, and uh, Tamar certainly knew this, and so uh, here's what's going on. Father-in-law is going up, He's going to go up for the sheep shearing, very festive time. He's just suffered a major loss, and so here's what she does. She's about to act, and she removed her widow's garments, 14, covered herself with a veil, wrapped herself, and sat in the gateway of Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up, and she had not been get, given to him as wife. So Tamar, was, her clock was ticking, as it were, and uh, she figured, well, you know, he's going to go out for this festive occasion. I'm in my morning garments, sitting here, waiting for him. And it's obvious to her at this point, he's not going to act. And so she dresses up like a prostitute. And when Judah saw her, verse 15, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So here comes father-in-law, walking through this gate where temple prostitutes may have uh, gathered at this time. And he sees her, and her face is covered. She's got on the garb of a prostitute. This almost sounds like a bad episode of cops. <laughs> and he turned aside to her by the road and he said to her, here now, let me come into you. This is just another way of let's have sex. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law and she said, well, what will you give me that you may come into me? So Judah takes the bait. His sexual appetite will not tolerate postponement. I'm quoting another writer. Though he had been content to let Tamar languish as a childless widow indefinitely. Just think of the irony here. He was willing to leave her to suffer, and he didn't seem to care about the time. But the moment he saw a prostitute after his wife was dead, he had to get sexually gratified himself. See something wrong there? You know, the Bible tells us that we should be not just looking out for our own personal interests, but for the interests of others. If Judah had been walking in love, he would have done something, at least been honest with the girl and said, look, I don't want to give my last son to you. I'm sorry. Maybe we got to work something else out. But look, he just left her there to suffer. And he went on. And the first woman that he sees that he thinks he can be sexually gratified, all of a sudden now he's willing to do that. He said, therefore, I will send you. She says, well, what are you going to give me? And he said, I will send you a kid from the flock. This is a goat. She said, moreover, will you give me a pledge until you send it? Okay, you're, you're, you say you're going to do this, and uh, you're going you're to give me this goat. Well, what kind of guarantees do I have? So this is sex in exchange for a goat. 
simply put. If you're a note taker, you probably never thought you would write a note like that in church, but there it is. But there was no goat there except for Judah. He was the goat. She says, I'll sleep with you, but she asked for this pledge, and we'll see what that's going to be. But I think here Judah has become the goat. In fact, this whole story gets my goat. (laughs) I just thought I'd throw that in for you. Anybody know where that saying came from? This story gets my goat. Comes from Genesis 38. No, I'm just kidding. I have no idea if it does. It's possible, but I don't know that, so. So she says, well, what pledge will you give to me? What pledge, uh, he said, what pledge shall I give you? He's talking, and she said, your seal. If you have a New King James ESV, it's your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her, and he went into her, he slept with her, and she conceived by him. So the child conceived for Ur was not a grandchild of Judah. This is kind of weird. Tamar was set to become the progenitress of the line of Judah, a principal matriarch in Israel, bearing the son of Judah herself. It's, it's a bit strange. This is kind of a weird thing. There's a father-in-law involved here, and it's, it's quite, quite a mess. Giving these items to her, notice her, uh, he would give his seal or his signet and his cord, is an ancient way of giving your license and social security number to somebody. It declared your identity. His signet was not a ring, but a seal, it might have been cylindrical, that he wore around his neck. The staff was often carved with an equally, equally distinctive marking. So he gave some of his most personal items to her. He would take this signet off from around his neck. And if you've heard of the idea of the seal, you know that in the ancient world what they would do is they would take hot wax, and you've heard of the idea of the signet ring, and they would impress the hot wax with a marking. And that hot wax would bear what we might call the signature of an individual. The the tomb of Jesus was sealed by the Roman emperor, Pontius Pilate. And you had to have authority to break the seal. As I started in Revelation 5, that's the idea. The seal speaks of two things primarily. It speaks of ownership and protection. It speaks of identity as well. Now there's an interesting verse I want to take you to this because this is a question that comes up. Go all the way to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1. So people say, people have questions about salvation all the time. They call the Bible Answer Show and they say, you know, can you lose your salvation? Uh, What happens here? How does this work? Well, let's take a look thinking about this idea of a seal. Pick up the the account. Uh, This is Ephesians 1, verse 13. Ephesians 1, 13. It says, In him you also, Ephesians 1, 13, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, Ephesians 1, 13, having also believed, so notice the progression, you listen to the message of truth, the gospel, you believe, then you are, notice, sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, For the Christian, God's seal, his impression, his mark of ownership on you, speaking of identity, ownership, and protection, is the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Holy Spirit, the the modern Greek here, who is given as a pledge, look at verse 14, of our inheritance with, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. 
The Holy Spirit given as a pledge of our inheritance. The, the pledge is, in modern Greek, it is arhaban, and it is actually an engagement ring. The Holy Spirit is God's engagement ring to you, promising what he's going to do. You may say, well, how long are you sealed with this promise? Go to Ephesians 4, verse 30. Ephesians 4, 30. This is talking about a Christian, and it's talking about a Christian who should not let unwholesome words come out of their mouth. If you look at Ephesians 4.29, it says you're a new person in Christ, so you should let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, Ephesians 4.29. But only such a word as is good for edification, that means to build up somebody, according to the need of the moment that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. You can grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were what? Sealed for what? The day of redemption. Now the day of redemption speaks of the final day when we experience the redemption of our bodies. That's Romans chapter 8. When the Lord comes, our bodies will get redeemed. We'll become, uh, we'll get a new resurrection body, never to be diseased, die again, etc. Praise God. But in the interim, as we battle with the flesh and so forth, the Holy Spirit lives in us, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. We've been sealed with Him for the day of redemption. My friends, you, if you're a Christian, belong to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit lives in you. And He's not going to leave you or forsake you, but you can grieve Him. You can quench Him. And... The Lord will discipline his children. So if you're messing up, what, what's some of the things that you feel as a Christian when you mess up? Go back to Genesis 38. How about this? Ever feel conviction when you mess up? Where's that come from? You know, when I was a non-Christian, I could send up a storm one day, wake up the next and say, hair of the dog, baby, and do it again with very little uh, problem for my conscience. But I became a Christian, and I discovered a new truth. You could say a new presence in my life. It was a sense of conviction, and I didn't enjoy sin anymore. <laughs> well, the moments were still kind of fun, but then I would have this deep sense of, that's not you anymore. And I would go, ouch. Ouch, what is this thing? They didn't tell me this when I walked down the aisle at the Christian church. Some of the truths we hold back for later spiritual maturity and development. We have it in the small print. You may not have read it before, but we do put it in the contract. You're sealed with God's seal. You belong to him. Now, Judah is up to no good, though. And so here he is, and he gives his most personal items to his daughter-in-law. He doesn't know that it's her, but he's with her, and she's got the stuff, and the deed is done. And then, 38, 19, back in Genesis, she arose, departed, removed her veil, put on her widow's garments, 38.20, and when Judah sent the kid or the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, so he sent his buddy to go and complete the transaction, to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. It's interesting, he sends his, his buddy, his Canaanite friend, to go take care of 
the transaction, to honor his part, to pay what he said, and he wants his stuff back. Kind of like uh, if someone was holding your license and credit cards or something like that, I'm sure there was a sense of urgency. Like, please go get this stuff. You're a local around there. Take care of this for me, right? So off goes Hira, and uh, he can't find her. Where is this woman? He asked the men of her place, saying, well, where's the temple prostitute, 21, who was by the road at Anaim? But they said, there has been no temple prostitute here. Hmm. Strange. So he returned to Judah and he said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, there has no, there's been no temple prostitute here. And can you imagine being Judah? What? What are you talking about? Yeah, here's your goat back. Uh, I can't find this woman. Well, Judah said, well, let her keep them, lest we become a laughing stock. After all, I sent this kid or goat, but you did not find her. Now Judah worries about what the people or the men of the town are going to think of him. He doesn't want people to be telling jokes about him. You know you're in trouble when you worry more about man's opinion than you do about God's. Amen? If you've been there lately, if you've been thinking, oh, so-and-so's going to laugh at me if I say I'm a Christian, can I give you two words that may help guide the rest of your Christian experience? Who cares? Is it really that important to you? Or is God's opinion more important to you? Look, I know we all want to be liked, and we certainly want to belong but he says, look, I, I'm worried that these people, they're going to be laughing about me. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Proverbs 29, 25. Now it was about three months later that Judah was informed, verse 24, Your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot. Behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Some of the versions say immorality. So all of a sudden, you know, three months is the end of the first trimester, right? So it's a little hard to be hiding a pregnancy. For a while, she could, she could do that, but now it's becoming obvious. And so all of a sudden, the talk, you know, has come out. And well, Tamar's been loose. She's, she's been betrothed to your boy, but she's obviously been playing the harlot. And Judah, I'm sure, filled with compassion, said these words, Bring her out and let her be burned. So Judah hears about it, and he's got some righteous indignation. Where was his righteous indignation before when he was doing stuff? Uh, apparently missing in action. You know, we can be pretty good at judging other people when they fall. Can you believe that? Those people! Sometimes we read the Old Testament, and we're like, I don't understand! They saw all the signs and the wonders, and there they are whining. We can go back to Egypt. We want to go back to Egypt. Quiet! And then there you are. And you're somewhere saying, I don't know if I want to be a Christian anymore. It's gotten hard. And you haven't gone without water for three days. Amen? You haven't really faced anything that challenging, and you're whining. <laughs> and so he says, oh, she needs to be burned. You know, maybe... For Judah, he was thinking, finally, I, I have an excuse to get rid of this woman. 
She's, she's been a thorn in my side. Now, now we got the law on our side. Now we can just burn her, but I'll tell you this, in the irony that God's providential hand often has, the one that's about to be burned is Judah. You see, the question that has to be arising in people's minds and hearts is, who's the father? Do we know who the father of this child is? I mean, she's betrothed to Shelah and all of this, but, but who is it? What's going on here? So it was while she was being brought out to here to take her out that she sent to her father-in-law saying, I'm with child by the man to whom these things belong. <laughs> Are y'all ready for this? And she said, Please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. So you can see the, the people are circling, you know, like the people in, the, in John chapter 8, ready to stone the woman. He who is without sin, let him cast the first stone at her. What did he say? Yeah, he who is without sin, you throw the first rock. And he started writing in the ground. We don't know what he was writing. Some people say he's writing the names and sins of all the people who were there with rocks in their hands. And all of a sudden, Judah, who is righteously indignant, she's got to be burned, man. She's done. Well, before any of these things take place, would you examine these items? See who they belong to. And Judah recognized them. It's hard when it's your driver's license, you know, it's your picture's on there. <laughs> you may have said you were two inches taller and 15 pounds lighter, but it's still you. Anybody do that on your license? Anybody want to confess? It's good for the soul. Okay, anyway. And Judah recognized them and he said, 26, she, gotta love this, is more righteous than I. Inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not have relations with her again. Judah was jolted. His jar, his jar, <laughs> I was going to say his jar dropped, and maybe that's, maybe that's a good metaphor. Although I, in my notes it said his jaw dropped. Do you remember when Nathan the prophet came to King David and told him the story? And it was basically all connected to uh, Uriah and Bathsheba and that whole ugly incident. And after he tells the story, he says to David, David's indignant and says, that man should die. And Nathan says, you are that man. You the man. You're that man. What? Yeah. God gave you everything. Everything you could ever want was at your beck and call. What did you have to do? You had to go steal the one ewe lamb from this poor family. And of course, that's the story that's told. But he stole the wife of a man who was serving him faithfully. So here's something refreshing, though. Tamar certainly wasn't innocent, but she was more righteous than Judah. But refreshingly, Judah admitted his wrong, and David did. When Nathan confronted him, he said, I have sinned. He owned it. And I, I want to give you some good news. Judah grew from this. In fact, it may have been a major turning point in his life. This is a verse that we should all remember. It's Numbers 32, 23. 
be sure that your sin will find you out. Numbers 32, 23. Arkent Hughes says, Judah would develop remarkably during the years leading up to chapter 44 after this incident, where Judah would act as a righteous man before Joseph, pleading for the welfare of Benjamin, offering his life as a pledge to save his little half-brother. Judah became a more honorable man. This incident, instead of it becoming his end or his undoing, became a turning point. And I'll say this to you as someone who was not a Christian for the first 20-something years of my life. I had some major blunders. Major moments of failure. Things that I wish I could undo. But in many ways, they became turning points in my life. I'm not the man that I used to be. I wish that some of the decisions I had made, especially between about 15 and 20 years old, were not there, but they're there. I can't change them. I can't take them away. But I am a new man today. And for some of you, you know, you have pain in your background and you wonder, and maybe even the pain's recent, and you're like, can I pick up the pieces from here? Can I go on? And you can be a man or woman of praise. You can be a man or woman who does grow. There's a, the prophecy that um, is told of Judah. Just take a peek ahead, Genesis 49. As Jacob is prophesying over the children, he gives this prophecy about Judah. He says these words, Genesis 49, look at verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the, on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp, 49.9. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. I want you to get this. And this is quite interesting. Back to 38, we'll quickly finish it. Tamar's actions were not, certainly were not righteous, but God used them to save the line of the Messiah. Isn't that interesting? Her actions, while not the best, providentially, that means God was steering it, ultimately, he turned it together for good. That's the theme verse of Genesis that we've been talking about. What you intended for evil, God, what? Intended for good to save many people alive. And it came about at the time that she was giving birth. So now we have Tamar. She's obviously been spared, verse 27. She's at that time to give birth. And behold, 38, 27, there were twins in her womb, just like Jacob and Esau we saw earlier. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first, a way to mark the firstborn. But it came about as he drew back his hand, that behold, his brother came out. Then she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. So his name was Perez. And afterwards, his brother came out, who had had the scarlet thread on his hand, and he was named Zerah. Once again, we're going to see in the Bible that the younger will gain ascendancy over the older. Uh, and I want to just close with Matthew 1. So turn there, the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. We'll look at the genealogy of Jesus Christ. I just want you to know that 
in, at, in the book of Ruth, if you want to take a look at it later, the book of Ruth closes with a record of ten generations from Perez to King David. That's Ruth 4, 18 through 22. Matthew quotes this, same ten generations leading to David, and they're delineated in the uh, further generations of Jesus Christ. Here's how it reads, Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. To Abraham was born, Matthew 1, 2, Isaac. And to Isaac, Jacob. And to Jacob, Judah and his brothers. And to Judah were born Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And to Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron, Ram. And to Ram was born Aminadab, and to Aminadab, Nishan, and to Nishan, Salmon. And to Salmon was born Boaz by who? Rahab. Now, if you circle things in your Bible, verse 3, you have Tamar. Verse 5, Rahab. And to Boaz, Boaz was, was born Obed by who? Ruth. What was Ruth? She was what? From where? Moab. She was a Moabitess. And to Obed, Jesse. And to Jesse was born David the king. And to David was born Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Who was that? That's Bathsheba. And she was a Hittite. Interestingly enough, do you know that the, the genealogy of Jesus Christ has four women mentioned in those verses, and then we'll get to Mary, who's the fifth. And the four women, in the genealogy of the Messiah, are Gentiles. They're not Jewish. And you're like, what? Yeah, it's a genealogy of grace, and here's how we're going to close this message tonight. God is a God of grace. And we mess things up. And we often make a whole mess of stuff and we wonder, is there any way this stuff can be redeemed? And in the very genealogy of Jesus Christ is a woman we just read about named Tamar. And God causes all things to work together for good. Look, grace is not an excuse for sin. We all know that. But God's grace is so amazing. Just bow your hearts with me. Father God, we just, we're just in awe of how honest the Bible is how instructive it is, how real it is, and yet how hopeful these stories are. What hope would we have if we didn't see these stories? If everybody in the Bible was perfect, I think we'd all hang up our cleats and go home. But Lord, if you, O oh Lord, kept a record of sin, O oh Lord, who could stand? But with you, there's forgiveness. With you, amazing grace. Every sin I've ever committed, you have erased. We just want to take a moment to reflect on the Bible, Lord. Meditate on your word. Your word's a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Lord, whatever your Holy Spirit would be saying to our hearts tonight, let that word seep deep into our souls. Let us be people of hope and joy and new beginnings. Let us be a people who rejoice in our salvation. And more than that, rejoice in our Savior, Christ the Lord. Thank you that he came to this world to save people like us. And thank you that even though we've made our share of mistakes, you still have counted us worthy to inherit all that you have, eternal life and the kingdom to come. And 
We're part of your kingdom now. It's not yet appeared what we shall be, but we know that when you appear, we'll be like you. We will see you just as you are. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Lord, let us be a people who are striving for holiness. Even though we have great hope, sin always has its tentacles and its consequences. And it happened here. And they learned from it, and we need to as well. But help us to move forward and to become more like you. Shape and mold our lives. Take the dross away. Let that seal that's already ours by the Holy Spirit, let that seal be seen by more and more people, that mark that we belong to you. We just want to say we love you tonight. And with your heart and head bowed, if you don't know Christ, you don't have this redemption, and you're going to have to face God in all of your sin and it's not going to be pretty. But the beauty of the gospel is that Christ took your sin at the cross. He took your punishment, and he's willing to extend forgiveness to you, but you must come to him. You must run to the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb of God who will take away your sin. If you want to do that tonight, something like this with your head and heart bowed, Jesus, save me. Pray it if it's you. Save me, Lord. Thank you for your grand forgiveness. Thank you for your love. Please forgive me of my sins. I want to know you. Cause me to be born again of your Holy Spirit. Make me a new creation in Christ. If you need to rededicate your life to Christ, something that could be very similar, Lord, give me a new start. I repent of my sin. I want to follow you. And Lord, we just want to take a moment to reflect on your goodness and your grace and just say thank you for all you've given to us in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?